If you will turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. We're still in Luke, still in chapter 3. <laughs> and uh, we'll be starting in verse 15. And once you are there, Luke three fifteen, if you could please stand and join me for the reading of God's word. Luke 3.15, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chafe he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. So as you see, we are going to be going through Luke 3, 15 through verse 20, and the title of this sermon is A Life Worth Living, A Life Worth Living. In Luke's gospel so far, chapter 3, just to recap, we have been introduced to John and his adult ministry. He's in a very tumultuous time in Israel's history where the Jews and the Romans are at a very high political tension. There's a lot of corrupt religious worship going on in the province. And out of this, John the Baptist emerges in his public ministry. And he preaches a very simple message, which Luke politely summarized for us at the beginning of this chapter. In Luke chapter 3, it says, And he, being John, went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And this is the basic message that John preaches. John goes through all the, the area preaching this basic message of repentance. And we saw last week, how this plays out in one specific instance, how John is interacting with the crowd, dialoguing with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the tax collectors, and the soldiers, and he exhorts them to live a life in which they bear fruit that proves the repentance that he's calling them for. Not only does he say, repent in your hearts, but go on living as you live, he says, if you have true, authentic repentance, your whole life is different. You can't just go on living like the rest of the world. If you're a tax collector, you live with integrity. You don't live like all the other tax collectors. If you're a soldier, you don't abuse your power. If you're a common person and you don't have any power in this world, you give generously out of the abundance that you've been given to other people. And this is the exhortation that John has for the people. He says, bear fruits that prove that the repentance is real. And then we find in verse 15 almost uh, a coming expectation. And this passage kind of introduces us to a confusion that we see in John's ministry because Luke has proven to us that John the Baptist is a significant figure in history. In fact, Jesus says about him that there's no one greater who was ever born of woman. And so this is a significant person. He's possibly the most underrated person in all the New Testament. But the reason is because he comes right along before Jesus. And so what you see in this dialogue is this interesting interaction where the people who are rightly responding to John's message becoming concerned or perhaps confused about who is John the Baptist and what is he here to do? Is he the Christ who they're expecting to come? And so you're going to see this passage break out in a whole bunch of different ways. 
But I'm going to break it out really in four different points. We're going to see how John answers the question and how this concludes this section. We're going to see that John says he is not the Christ. In fact, the Christ is a greater man, that the Christ offers a greater baptism, that the Christ has a greater judgment that he delivers, and then ultimately that the Christ and his message leads us to a greater purpose. Okay, so those are the four points. We're going to walk through them in order. But before we get into that, there's one question that I want to pose to you at the beginning. And I want you to keep this in your mind as we work throughout this text, which is this question. What makes for a meaningful life? What is a life that is worth living? And you can ask it even more personally to yourself. What do I desire to accomplish in my life? What is it that I think is worth living for and worth spending my time and my energy and my effort on? We can learn from a lot of people in Christian history how they try to answer this question. Jonathan Edwards, in his resolutions, says, resolve to live with all my might while I do live. And the rest of his resolutions color in what he thinks living with all his might looks like. And we can even learn here from John the Baptist in terms of how his whole life here in the conclusion of this life of John's ministry, we can see how he pours out his life for one meaningful purpose. And so keep that in the back of your mind as we work through this text. But first, we're going to look at verse 15 and verse 16, and we're going to see that when John gets asked the question, he says he's not the Christ, the Christ is a greater man. So in verse 15, it says, As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And this forms the first like, unit of thought in this text, which is there's this expectation coming. So John, remember, in his ministry, preaches repentance. He preaches that the kingdom of, of kingdom of God is coming. It says he's the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. And people in Israel are flocking to go hear this guy preach. They're going into the wilderness. They're hearing him rebuke them. And they're still responding positively and getting baptized because the spirit is at work and the spirit is moving. But it's moving so much and his ministry is so effective that people begin to turn around and ask each other, is this guy the Christ who we're waiting for? It says that all of the people were in expectation, and that word, expectation, has to do with they're, they're waiting for like the coming judgment or the future judgment that is promised in the Old Testament. They're in expectation of this coming moment in time. And the expectation, the reason that they're waiting, the reason they're so excited for what's coming, the reason they're leaning in trying to discern these things, is because John is preaching the kingdom of heaven is coming, and they must repent and be baptized because the axe is already at the root of the tree. And that kind of judgment language would bring to mind for the people of Israel the fact that the second judgment is coming. And when the second judgment comes, that is when ultimately the people of Israel are restored to God. So the people of Israel are leaning forward trying to see, is this the moment? Is this the thing that they were always waiting for? And then they move from this and they say that they're questioning in their hearts concerning John. Now, when it says they're questioning in their hearts, that doesn't just mean private or internally they're questioning. It doesn't mean they go back to their houses and they just think internally about these things. We know that because John has to answer the question, which means there was some kind of public dialogue going on about that. What it says, when it says they're questioning in their hearts concerning John, what that means is they're not just thinking of these as off, far away ideas. They're saying that these ideas have personal, deep implications for how they live their lives. So when they're contemplating in their hearts, they know the significance of the things they're weighing out. They know that depending on how this question gets answered, it's going to radically change their lives. And so when they contemplate in their hearts, 
they're weighing life and death. You know, is this moment the moment I repent, or do I continue to go on in my ways? Or is this moment when Christ is coming back to ultimately do what is prophesied in the Old Testament? So there's this pregnant moment of time where the people ask this question. And this is recorded in all of the Gospels where John has to deny that he is Jesus, that he is the Christ. And it says, when they lean in and they ask him, is he the Christ, he gives them three reasons why he's, in fact, not the Christ. Now, before he gives those three reasons, I just want to point this out. Could you imagine living a life so significant and so on mission for God that people confused you with the Messiah that God was promising to send the people? Could you imagine a person who lives so faithfully to the call of God that people think this is the guy, this is the anointed one who God promised he was going to send? That is the kind of life that John lives. He gets confused with the Messiah. And the people of Israel hand this title out almost freely to John, and then they deny it when Jesus is the one who comes towards it. Right? They're asking John, are you the Christ? But Jesus is saying, only his disciples figure it out, and that's like in year two of his public ministry. And so we know that this is a significant question to even be raised. But the way Luke asked the question, he asked it almost in like a negative way in Greek, which means he asked it like there's a possibility of him being the Christ, but you kind of know the answer as the question's being asked. It's like, you're not really the Christ, are you? Luke frames it that way so that his readers don't get confused about, you know, was John the Christ or was Jesus the Christ? Should we decide? And so when he asked the question, Luke or John the Baptist gives the first reason why he's not the Christ, and it's found in that middle of verse 16. It says, he who is mightier than I is coming. And it says that this person who's mightier, he's, it's the strap of his sandals that I am not worthy to untie. So the first reason that John gives is that the coming Christ is not like John. He's, in fact, a greater man. He's greater than John the Baptist is. And if you, if you notice in this text, he, he gives even two reasons for his greatness. So he's not spelling out his greatness just in terms of strength. He also spells out his greatness in terms of holiness or glory. And these two descriptions of greatness lead us to, in your mind, this should pop up the image of a king. This is not just someone who's holy and respected in the community. This is also someone who commands power. It says, the one who is coming after me is mightier than I, and it's the strap of his sandals that I am not worthy to untie. So when he talks about the Christ, he talks about him in two terms. He talks about him in terms of strength and in terms of holiness, and he says that I am so low on the totem pole as his servant that I can't even untie his sandals. And this job for a Jewish slave was actually forbidden. It was so low on the totem pole that even a Hebrew slave who voluntarily sold himself into slavery was still forbidden from doing this kind of activity. So John is saying the master is so much greater than me that I'm not even worthy to do the lowest deed that a slave could possibly do for their master. That's how much greater this coming one is. He is the one who is mightier. He is the one who is more glorious. He is the one who is more holy and this is the one who we are waiting for. The one who is coming is a greater man. It's, and you'll notice that John, although he's close with God, although he has the Spirit on him, although he leads a wildly successful public ministry in terms of people coming and hearing him preach, you will still notice that he is not casual with God. He's close with God. He has a great relationship with the Lord. And yet still, he has this separation, this distinction between him and God. And when we approach the Lord, when we think about God, when we engage with him in prayer, 
we should remember that this distinction is one that we should always keep in mind. God is not our friend. God is Lord and Savior of all the universe, the creator and sustainer of all things. And he is so much greater than us that John the Baptist, the greatest one born among women, isn't even, un, isn't even worthy to untie his shoe straps. And yet you and I stand and sometimes very casually engage with God and consider the things of God almost too lightly. So notice that John's relationship with God, his intimacy with the Lord, does not take away from his reverence or his awe of God. In fact, in the text, it seems to add to it. It seems that he, the closer he gets to God, the more respectful he becomes, the more aware of his own sinfulness he becomes. And you'll remember in the Old Testament, prophets like Isaiah, when he stands in the throne room, the same thing happens. When he gets the vision of the throne room and he's raptured up, he gets right into the presence of God. He becomes the most aware of his sin at that moment, the most aware of how much greater God is than he is. And you and I might take a cue or take a note from those individuals and how they treat God when they get really, really up close with him. And so we see that Jesus, the Christ, is a greater man than John the Baptist. The second thing you'll notice when John gives his reason is he says, not only is he a greater man, but he offers a greater baptism than I do. And you'll notice that really at the beginning of this quote, and then it kind of continues at the end of what we just looked at. It says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And so then the, the distinction has been drawn. John says, I baptize with water, but the one who's coming baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And all the commentators who write on this text would agree with this one point, that understanding this baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire is kind of the hinge on which the whole passage turns. Because Jesus comes with a baptism. And if you think about the baptisms that Christians practice today, we still baptize with water. So the question is, in what way is Jesus' baptism greater than John's baptism? What does he mean when he says he baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire? And this is really the crux of the thing that separates Jesus and John the Baptist. Because Jesus comes, and he comes in such a way that you know it's the Christ, because he comes baptizing with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So we're going to break down that, and we're going to see what does it mean, how would they have understood when he says he, he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So the first thing uh, you need to understand is that when he says he baptizes with the Holy Spirit, as a Jewish person, you only have the Old Testament. You don't have all the passages in the New Testament. You don't have Pentecost happening yet. So the question is, well, what does it mean when he says, I baptize with the Holy Spirit? What comes to your mind when he says something like that? And there's two Old Testament texts that we can turn to and we can look at to see what he means when he says this. The first one is Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27. So if you'll turn there with me, I'll also read them. Ezekiel 36, 25 and 27. Remember, as a Jewish person, you don't have the New Testament. So these are the images that are going to come to your mind when, you, he, when he says he's going to come and baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 25. And this is the Lord talking about his redemption of the people, talking about the making of the new covenant. And he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you 
a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. So the first thing that comes to mind as a Jewish person is when he says the Holy Spirit is going to be the thing that Jesus baptizes with, what's coming to mind is the, the day when the covenant is going to be renewed, when the new contract is going to be upped that he prophesies in the Old Testament. And this contract comes with some stipulations. He says it's not going to be like the old contract because the old contract was rules that you couldn't follow. The new contract is different because the new one offers my spirit empowering you to do the work. My spirit poured out on you to allow you to obey my rules. It says, and I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes. It is the spirit that is poured out on the people that is the link between the old covenant and the new covenant. It's the distinguishing factor. So as a Jewish person, you hear the Holy Spirit is part of this new baptism. What's coming to mind is when he says he's going to pour his spirit out on you, just like you would pour water out on a person. It's the same kind of language being used. And the other text you can look to to understand this is Joel chapter 2. Now, Joel is a minor prophet, so I'm going to give you some time to turn there. Joel chapter 2, and we're going to be in verse 28 of that text. Joel is also prophesying about the same thing Ezekiel prophesies about. And both of these are just a, a handful of examples. There's examples of texts like this in Hosea, in Isaiah. There's examples of this in uh, several of the other minor prophets as well. But I just want to look at two of them to spare you the time of turning. But Joel chapter 2, and we'll be in verse 28 of this text. And it says in verse 28, And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And I will show you wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is the quote out of Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. And what this brings to mind is several New Testament images, right? There are several things that are being said here that we can point to in the New Testament when they happen. The first is he says, he will pour out his spirit on all flesh. That means not just the Jewish people. That just means not just the priestly class. That means all people get the spirit of God poured out on them. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation, Jews and Gentiles male and female, masters and servants, all of them get the Spirit of God poured out. And the Spirit is going to be so active and so moving that everyone's going to be prophesying. The old men dream dreams, the young men shall see visions, the male and female servants, they're all prophesying. And this brings to mind a time in the early church when you see like uh, the people, they have like just prophetesses and prophets everywhere. They're all prophesying. They're telling Paul what's going to happen to him in the future. They're, they're talking about predictions. They're, you see Peter has a vision about the old covenant, the ceremonial law being broken. And what you see is the fulfillment of those things in the book of Acts. And then the last piece of this that he says, he says he'll pour out his spirit. And on that day, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So the pouring out of the spirit is linked to an ability to respond in faith. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit is linked to the people's ability to respond. Before the Holy Spirit gets poured out, that verse 32 is not possible. 
People do not call on the name of the Lord to be saved before the Spirit moves, but when the Spirit moves, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is a guarantee. That's a guarantee we see in John 3.16, that whosoever believes will not perish, but will have everlasting life. That's what we see in Romans chapter 9, or chapter 10, verse 9, where it says, and all who call on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. They will be justified by their profession of faith. And it shall come to pass that everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. So he's linking the pouring out of the Spirit with the coming day of the Lord, that final day of judgment. And so as a Jewish person, as a Hebrew, hearing John say these statements, he will come and baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The first part of that, the Holy Spirit, brings to mind the day of God renewing the covenant, redeeming his people, and causing them to walk in his statutes with a new spirit. The Holy Spirit gets poured out on them, and then it stays with them to enable them to live a holy and a just life before God. So that's part one of what he says. And the second piece is the language of fire. The fire, it says he will pour out, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Fire brings usually two things to mind when we think of Scripture. Fire, first and foremost, is associated very commonly with the judgment. The judgment of eternal fire, the lake of fire, right? The smoke goes up forever and ever. We are familiar with that language. The other thing that fire can refer to in Scripture is a purity or a pure fire. And what I want you to bring to mind when you think of this is Mount Sinai, when God descends on the mountain and there's a cloud of fire that surrounds it. Or when God speaks to Moses out of the burning bush and there's fire all around the bush, but the bush isn't consumed. That fire is not God judging Moses in that moment. It's not a fire of judgment, but it's a fire that represents the purity of God. And so the language of fire could mean one of two things. In this text, it could be talking about his judgment or the purifying of the people who have the Holy Spirit poured out on them. And so the question is, well, how do we know which one he's talking about? And the linking word that you need to pay attention to is the word and in the text. It says he baptizes you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He doesn't say, I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit or with fire. The baptism of the Holy Spirit and the baptism of fire are linked ideas by the word and. And so what we are supposed to understand as readers of the text is that when he says the people who get baptized with the Holy Spirit, those are the same people who get baptized with fire. Meaning, what he's referring to in the text here is the fire that refers ultimately to purity. The fire that is alive in the people, he pours out his spirit onto them, the fire gets kindled within them, and it purifies them for this life and ultimately in the life to come. They are passed through the fire, and in that way they are purified. So they are purified by the fire. Now what is also true is that this same baptism of the Holy Spirit and with fire, it's one baptism, Holy Spirit and fire, but there are two possibilities, right? A response to this baptism and a non-response or a denial of this baptism. In the gospel accounts, Luke in chapter 12 refers us to blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And in that text, when he's talking about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, he says every other sin will be forgiven of man except this, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And we know that the only thing people ultimately perish for is a denial of the redeeming grace of God, and they deny the Holy Spirit, they push it off, they reject the free offer of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and then they face not the renewing fire, the fire that purifies, but they face that fire that we thought of originally, the judgment or the fire of eternal condemnation and wrath of God. So we know that the fire has two images. In this case, it's talking about a purifying fire, but there are two options. You either accept this baptism that is offered freely, accept the Holy Spirit, 
go through the purifying fire, or you reject the Holy Spirit, you quench the Holy Spirit, you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, and then you face the fire of judgment. And so Jesus comes with an offer of a greater baptism. This is unlike John's baptism. It doesn't need to be redone again. Remember, John's baptism, they need to be rebaptized into Jesus' baptism. We see that in Acts. So Jesus comes offering a greater baptism, one with the Holy Spirit where he stays with the people and helps them to live out their life, and also one that purifies them, ultimately removing their sin, not just an external cleansing, not a ritual, but an internal reality of who they are and how they ought to live. And so we've seen the greater man, we've seen the greater baptism, and now we're going to look at the greater judgment that is the third distinguishing factor that John lists between him and the Christ. So the greater judgment, you'll see that in verse 17. It says, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chafe he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now this should bring to mind something you read earlier last week in verse 9. Now it says that even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And both of these talk about, and they're gardening analogies or they're harvest analogies that have to do with ending in either a good or a bad result for the plant in, in the analogy, in the illustration. And this one also talks about judgment, just like the one we saw last week, but this one is slightly different, right? Instead of an axe, we have a winnowing fork. And if you don't know what that is, you can picture a pitchfork. It's something you, you shove into the, the grain and you throw it up, and what would happen when you threw up the grain is the heavy grain, the stuff that has substance to it, falls straight back down to the ground, but the chaff, which are like the kernels or kind of like the residue, gets blown away by the wind. And so he's saying that he is the, the one with the winnowing fork. He, he separates the grain and the chaff. He separates the wheat and the chaff from one another. So the winnowing fork is his tool. It helps him to separate, just like the axe was his tool last week, and it helped him to decide between good and bad trees and to act that out. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and it's to clear his threshing floor. And it's to gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff, they have a different destination. And so the question is, what makes this judgment that Jesus brings greater than the judgment of John the Baptist? John the Baptist calls people to repentance, but his judgment ultimately isn't the final judgment. John the Baptist might make judgments on people, but his judgments are at best humanly limited and and limited by his own lack of understanding and by the fact that he's not God. He can't make permanent decrees about people. However, the judgment that Jesus brings is different, and it's different in a handful of ways. The first is that it's not flawed. God knows everything. We call this omniscience in theology. God knows everything. In Ezekiel 11:5, we see that God says, I know the things that come into your mind, which means the things that you think, the things that you do, the things that you say, even the most secret place of your mind, God knows what goes on in those places. And so, God's judgment is, as a result, not flawed. You see, humans in a court make decisions based on the evidence that we see. And sometimes we make good decisions, sometimes we make bad decisions. But in any case, the judge can say, well, I didn't know perfectly. And so if new evidence comes to light, we could maybe reverse a decision or uproot an old decision. But God's judgment is different in that it's never flawed. He has all the evidence before him every time he makes a decision. So there's no new evidence that's going to come to light later. He judges perfectly. His judgment is not flawed. The second thing we see about God's judgment, the thing that makes it greater, is that it's not partial. In Exodus 34, 7, he says, I will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, which means God makes a promise on the basis of his character that it is in his nature not to let, guilty go, not to let the guilty go free. He's a just judge. 
And so unlike judges in this world that can be bribed and can make poor decisions or can make unjust calls, God's judgment is not only perfect with all the evidence, but it's perfect in that he never makes a, mis- he never makes a decision that is unjust. He can't be bribed, he can't be excused, and he shows no partiality, meaning he holds everyone to the same standard, the standard he gave us in his law. So he's not only does he know everything, not only is he not going to let anyone slide on any technicalities, but the last thing about his judgment that makes it greater is that his judgment is permanent. His judgment is permanent. And if you want to see that in the text, it's in that word unquenchable. It says he will burn them in the unquenchable fire. His judgment is one that goes on for all eternity. And this is the part of God's judgment that is difficult for many of us to understand. In fact, all of these parts of God's judgment are difficult for us to understand because we are people and we don't judge like God. His ways are way above our ways. But we do know, according to the testimony of Scripture, that his judgment is permanent. It is the final call. And once it happens, it's over. And so, John says the judgment of God is different than the judgment of us, and we should be aware that this is coming. And he uses an illustration to help us understand this. He says, you know, there's the wheat and there's the chaff. And this illustration helps us to bring to light some of the things that he's trying to get at. The first thing is just like the tree analogy, wheat and chaff, they're separated based on the very nature of what they are. They're not separated based on some external characteristic or some external mimicry. They're separated based on their nature. Good trees bear good fruit, they're spared. Bad trees bear bad fruit, they're cut down. Wheat, by definition, are heavier than chaff. So if you do this separating technique, the wheat always fall down, the chaff always blow away. Meaning, by nature, the chaff blows and gets away, and by nature, the wheat stays and is gathered. So it is the nature of the chaff and the wheat that causes them to be separated. And so it is true in Scripture that it is the nature of sinners and the nature of saints to be separated. They're not separated based on some external manifestation of righteousness. They're based on an internal reality about what is true. They're based on the nature of what they are. The second thing we see in this illustration is that it is necessary for the chaff to be separated out for the wheat to be harvested. If you know anything about harvesting, this is like a necessary process for the harvest to take place. And all the grain will get harvest. He says they're his grain, he's going to harvest them. But as part of this harvest, the chaff getting separated out is a necessary process. It's a necessary part of the harvest. Which means, just like when sinners and saints who live on this world together, ultimately God promises he's going to come back for his saints. But what that means is in the process of coming back and gathering his saints, the sinners get separated out. It is just part of the process of his salvation. It requires for heaven to be perfect that evil people are out of heaven, which means they cannot enter in, which means there needs to be a separation process before he lets people in. And so the sinners and the saints are separated out in that way. It is a permanent separation. It's a separation based on the nature of who they are. And ultimately, it is a separation that we cannot say is unjust. The farmer does this based on perfect knowledge, perfect understanding, and with just following the natural laws of how these processes carry out. It is an inevitable to harvest the wheat, and the chaff separating out is a necessary consequence. So therefore, we see that not only is Jesus, the Christ, he's going to be a greater man, the one who's coming after is also going to have a greater baptism. He's also going to have a greater and a more severe judgment. And this leads us to probably the longest section of text we're going to look at to close this out, which is the greater purpose that this leads John to. Remember, John doesn't live his life in a vacuum. He answers these questions as people say, is he the Christ? He answers this right off the bat. 
And so these are convictions that he holds deeply that you will see inform how he lives and ultimately how he dies in his ministry. And we'll start with that in verse 18. It says, so that with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. You, you might want to pause there for a second and look at that again. It says, he preached good news to the people. And what we just read was a language of judgment and a language of condemnation. And then he says here, and with many other exhortations, just like the one we just saw, he preaches good news to the people. And so in our minds, we have to ask ourselves, well, in what way is this good news? What is, it, what is good about the fact that the chaff are getting separated out, that there is a judgment coming, the judgment is eternal, the judgment is permanent? What is it that is so good about that? Well, that word good news translated here in your English Bible is also the same word that we get gospel translated in other places in your English Bible. This is the good news that Luke is ultimately writing about, and when he says this, he has in view the salvation of God's people. John preaches the good news, he preaches the gospel to the people before Jesus even starts his public ministry. It says, with many other exhortations, he preaches the gospel, the gospel of salvation to the people. And many will say that, you know, Jesus hasn't even started his public ministry yet. He hasn't even died on the cross yet. So how do we know that he's preaching a gospel of, you know, substitutionary atonement, Jesus dying in our place for the debt of sin? And it's pretty easy. Remember, Luke didn't, leave, didn't start his gospel here. He started it actually earlier. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 77, we see that this coming child is going to be the salvation of the people of Israel. And when John is talking, the next character we get introduced to is Jesus, the child who that was prophesied over. And so the salvation of God is going to be realized in the ministry of this person. And in John chapter three, or sorry, in Luke chapter three, verse six, we see that through the Old Testament, he talks about all flesh seeing the salvation of God. So when John here is preaching the good news, make no mistake, he has in mind the scope of salvation. He's not just preaching relatively good news or good news in terms of, you know, other victories. He's preaching the good news in terms of an eternal salvation of the wicked people. And we know this because he just got done not preaching about social inequalities. He didn't get done preaching about how you got to just love your neighbor. He got done preaching about how you're a sinner by nature and you need to not be a sinner by nature. And the separating factor between being a sinner by nature and not being is not something you can do because bad trees cannot bear good fruit. You need to be changed from the inside out. You need to repent of your sins and be open to the Holy Spirit coming in and completely renewing you for the Lord to pour out his spirit on you and to make you walk in his statutes. And so this is the salvation that he just got done preaching. And then it says, with many other exhortations, he preaches the good news to the people. John has in mind the gospel, meaning you and I are sinful people. We do sinful things, and we don't do sinful things because we find them convenient now and then. We do sinful things because at the very core of who we are, we are sinners. That is how we start in this world. In fact, Paul tells us in Romans that not only do you start, you know, when you're three, four, five years old like this, he says, before you were born, you were like this, thanks to Adam. And it is because you all live under Adam, under his headship, you live and are born into original sin. And you live your whole life, and it's not like you do sins and that makes you a sinner. You are a sinner by nature, and so you sin as an outflowing of the fact that you are a sinner. You're corrupt to your core. And then, not only that, but you can't do anything to save you. The leopard can't change his spots. The Ethiopian can't change his skin. So that how can sinful people become good people if we are sinners by nature? And so then John preaches this gospel, 
And he goes on and he says that, you know, good trees can't bear bad fruit and bad trees can't bear good fruit, but we know a man who can actually cause you to be reborn and he can be cause you to be reborn in such a way that you have a totally new nature inside of you. You must be born of water and spirit, as Jesus says to Nicodemus. And this new birth leads to a new person, a new nature, a nature that is now compatible with the ways of God, a nature that is not corrupt. It's born of water and spirit. And now God is walking alongside us to cause us to be made new. And when he does this, he doesn't do this and then you forget about all of our old sins. That still has to be dealt with because he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And so even if at this moment you undergo this new birth, the reality is that all the sins you've committed up to this point still need to be paid for. And so what then do we see? Well, we see in Scripture that Jesus, the suffering servant, prophesied in Isaiah 15, is the one who is pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our sins, and is the punishment that brought us, the, the chastisement that brought us peace is laid upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. By his wounds, we are healed. The gospel of good news is not ultimately about social wounds being healed. The gospel of good news is the fact that you and I are not right before a holy God, and we need Jesus to pay for that debt that we owe and to pour out his spirit on us to cause us to walk in a right relationship with God. Not perfectly, but increasingly. And Jesus doesn't just die for all the sins you have committed in the past. He, command, he dies for the sins that you currently have going on in your life right now and the ones you're going to commit in the future. He dies for all of those sins. And he dies in such a way in which he stands in our place and he pays for all of the sins that we've committed. And so when God looks at us, he's not an unjust judge because he's paid the price. Jesus pays in our place. And because Jesus pays in our place, now when God looks at us, he sees not our sinfulness, but Christ's righteousness, which has been transferred to us. We call that the penal substitutionary atonement, which means the penalty was substituted and the atonement was paid by a perfect sacrifice, the lamb, which Isaiah predicts, which Revelation talks about. The lion, no, not the lion, the lamb that was slain is the one who is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of Jesse the one who is ultimately the one who's been predicted all throughout Scripture. And this is what John is talking about when he preaches the good news. There's grain and there's chaff. And by nature, the grain gets separated out and the chaff get blown away. You want to know how you get in the grain category? Chaff can't become grain. They need to be made into grain. And this is not a natural work. This is a supernatural work. Nicodemus says, how can I be born again as an old man? And Jesus said, are you so slow of understanding? You need to be born of water and spirit. This is a supernatural birth that you can't understand. And so it is that John preaches the gospel of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He preaches the good news to the people. And if you want further clarification that this is what John is preaching, the repentance for the forgiveness of sins, in verse 19, we see where this gospel preaching gets him. In verse 19, we see Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, he added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. You see, John goes out faithfully preaching the good news, repentance, forgiveness, deliverance from sins. And what happens is when Herod hears this, and he hears it not once, not a few times, but in an ongoing way, he decides he's had enough of this message. Because the message is consistent. Repent of your sin, and trust in Christ for salvation. If you're powerful, you still can't save yourself. If you are living in sin, Christ can call that sin into question. He is in violation of law. Herod took Herodias, which was his, brother in, which was his brother's wife. So this is his sister-in-law who he's married to. 
And what happens is Herod didn't just do this as a single person. He divorced his old wife, and Herodias divorces her husband, Philip, and now they get married to each other. And John recognizes this as an unlawful relationship. In, in Leviticus, we see clearly this is an unlawful union. Not only is it strange by modern standards, it's completely against the Old Testament law. And so Herod does this. He's living in sin. And John the Baptist simply points out the sin. He doesn't just point out the sin, by the way, and say, therefore, you're going to die and burn forever. He, he points out the sin, and just like he preached here, repent and believe. Repent and be baptized. You can be forgiven of the sins that you've committed, but you need to repent and you need to be made right with God. And what Herod does is similar to what most sinners do, is he hates the message. He doesn't want to confront his sin. And so even though forgiveness is freely offered on the back end of that condemnation, he says, you know what? I'm just going to do away with the witness. I'm going to take John. I'm going to throw him in prison so he can stop preaching to me about this stuff. He, he, instead of listening to what John says, he throws him in prison. If you've read the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah, this is his story, right? He preaches to the kings of Israel, repent. Judgment is coming. Babylon's here. And they just throw him in prison. One point, they throw him into a well and it doesn't have any water in it and they just kind of leave him in there for a little while. Because they're like, maybe that'll get him to stop talking. But John the Baptist doesn't stop. He actually continues and he continues up until the point of the day that he dies. And this led me to wonder something, which is, Something we see a lot in scripture is this kind of theme of being confronted with sin and then how you respond, right? So Herod, we know Herod is like a wicked person, right? We, we understand that when we read scripture. He's, the, he's kind of like a flat character who's always doing the same thing. You can kind of rely on what Herod's going to do as you read the text. And here in this case, he, he gets confronted with sin and he decides not to respond in a positive way. He continues in his sin, throws John in prison. There are other characters in scripture who we see do these kinds of things. In fact, in John chapter 12, we see the Pharisees confronted with the fact that Lazarus is up and walking around after he's been dead. They don't say, this guy must be the Christ who just raised someone from the dead. What they say instead is, let's kill Lazarus. You know, he was alive, he was dead, he came back to life. We don't like that the evidence is walking around. Let's kill him, and then after we kill him, we'll kill Jesus too. That's what they decide to do. They don't, they don't face the evidence, they don't face the facts. Instead, what they try to do is they try to dispose of the evidence and to cover up this scheme. In fact, this goes all the way until after Jesus is resurrected from the grave in Matthew 28, we see the same kind of cover-up happen. The Roman soldiers come to the Pharisees. They say, hey, he got up, he's gone. What are we going to do? And they give them money and they say, we will cover for you for your superiors. Go and tell this story, that his disciples stole his body and that they overpowered you and we'll protect you, but tell this story, propagate this lie going forward. And so rather than facing the fact that Jesus got up rose from the grave, the testimony of the Roman soldiers, the Pharisees say, you know what, let's bury that evidence too. And you and I are much the same, like the Pharisees, like Herod, but when we get confronted with sin, our natural tendency, our first thought, is not to deal with it. Our first thought is to dispose of the evidence. Can I get away with this sin? If no one asks me about this, could I seemingly cover it up and push it to the side? Could I never deal with this sin again? If no one ever finds out, could I bury it? And although it is true that in this life there are instances and moments where that is the case, where you could bury your sin, Scripture is clear on one thing, which is that your sin will find you out. Sin always needs to be dealt with. And Herod, because he doesn't deal with his sin, is probably at this moment regretting that decision or still resentful of the fact 
that he didn't have enough opportunities, like we see with the rich man and Lazarus, also in Luke 16. And so what we see here is the reality that even though the gospel is good news and repentance and a free offer of salvation, that people still reject it. Herod doesn't want to face his sin, and ultimately this leads to him throwing John in prison and covering up the evidence. Ultimately, he decapitates John. We get that in some of the other gospel accounts. And that leads us to this question again, which is, you know, why is it that John's preaching of the good news is met with such hostility? How can we understand that? How can we understand this kind of hostility? Well, the reality is it's because sinful people who are told they're sinners to the core don't like to hear that. Sinful people don't like being told that they're sinners. And this message isn't for natural ears to hear. This message is for spiritual ears and spiritual eyes to hear because the Holy Spirit already has to be at work in someone's life for them to be able to respond to this kind of message. For someone to look at themselves and say, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior, that requires a supernatural revelation from God. And so we pray and we preach and we call for repentance, but ultimately we know that when that response happens, that it was not a natural decision of two brain synapses firing together and making a logical decision. We know is that is a man who has been saved by God and he's been open, his eyes have been opened and his heart has been changed and the Holy Spirit is actively at work to bring about repentance. And so that does not happen for Herod. Herod continues in his sin. But there's something else that we can learn from this text, which is that John the Baptist motivated by all these convictions he has about Jesus, motivated by all of these things, lives his life with one great purpose in mind. And this is where I really want to bring us to a close, is taking a look at like the last, the closing years of John's ministry, the closing time that John spends on this earth. And we see that he ends up in prison, locked up, and no longer able to preach. And the question is, is that a wasteful way to spend your time? And if you think about today's standards, you think that, you know, if John just was not approaching Herod with his sin, and he just kind of focused it in other directions, he could have still been having a fruitful ministry. You know, he could have still been out and about, doing good things for the kingdom. He just had to, you know, attack this one person. He had to poke the bear. And yet, this is not portrayed in Scripture as a waste or as a poor decision. But in Scripture, this is portrayed as a very fitting close to a very faithful minister. And so John ends up locked up in prison. And then later we see the Apostle Paul spends most of Acts locked up in prison. And then if you watch the early church, they spend most of their time getting beaten up and locked in prison. And if you follow even the church through the early centuries, every place they go to preach the gospel, they're either killed, burned, thrown in jail, beaten up. All of these things happen to those who preach the gospel. And yet, in today's culture, we live in such a place where Christians' natural tendency, rather than to go forth and to confront sin, is to be quiet about things we know people will be offended about. And so I want to... I pose this to you is like, what will cause you to live in a way that John the Baptist lives? What can we learn from the ways that he lives? John Piper says this in Desiring, uh, in Don't Waste Your Life. He says, the people who make a durable difference in this life are not people who have mastered many things, but people who have been mastered by one great thing. That's John Piper writing about what causes you to live in such a way that you forsake your life for the cause of the mission. I'll read that last part again. It says, it's not people who've mastered many things, but people who have been mastered by one great thing. And this is evident in John's life. John was mastered by the call that God had put on him, and this causes him to live a radically different life. We see that this leads to his boldness and his humility, because John the Baptist doesn't care about the fact that people don't like him. 
He ultimately cares about the fact that people aren't right with God. So even if Herod's upset by what he's saying and the Pharisees are upset by what he's saying, he's still going to preach repentance, forgiveness of sins, and salvation. He's bold in his proclamation because he doesn't care what people think about him. He's so humble, he lives as a servant, in that he doesn't care what people think about him, he cares what people think about God. And this causes both him to be bold and him to be humble because he's not out there to earn his own respect or to defend his own reputation. We see that this way of living in John the Baptist's life causes him to take his disciples and just raise them up to go with Jesus. In fact, in John chapter 1, verse 35, you get this interesting account where John the Baptist is hanging out with his disciples, people who he's trained. And Jesus just walks by and they go, is that the Christ? And John the Baptist says, that's the Christ. And the disciples just leave him and they go with Jesus. And if you're trying to build a brand or build a ministry, just sending people away to another rabbi in the area is a very bad way to do that. But John the Baptist does not say that this is a loss. In fact, a few chapters later, he says that ultimately he must increase and I must decrease. And so as believers, we have to ask the question, are we trying to build our own brand, our own name, our own reputation, or are we pointing people to Jesus? Because when John the Baptist has an impact on people, he leaves them in such a way where they don't feel this tension about leaving him. They just see going after Jesus as the natural completion point of their relationship with John. And John doesn't see that as a loss. He says that this is the natural fulfillment of my ministry, to send you away from me and on to God. And this is what the discipleship relationship ought to look like, that people aren't infatuated by how much you know and how much you think you know, but ultimately they get pointed to Jesus and his word through you and that they end up falling in love with him as a result of you, and ultimately they end up forgetting who you are and remembering who Jesus is. And this is what John the Baptist does as a model for ministry. He ends up in prison, beheaded, and we're still talking about him 2,000 years later because God honors the fact that he lived his life in this way. If you want to learn from John, you need to be engaged in discipleship. You need to be living your life like this. People who point other people to Jesus. Not just forming friendships where you become popular with other people, but living in discipleship relationships where you are all pointing each other to Christ or you're mentoring someone younger or you're being mentored, but not ultimately become closer with the other person, ultimately to point them to Christ and what he has done. And the, thing, the other thing we see about John is as a result of his convictions, he doesn't get lulled to sleep by this world. His convictions don't dull over time. He doesn't eventually get passive. He doesn't eventually disqualify himself from ministry. He stays on mission, on task, even to the point of his death. He doesn't despair when in prison. He stays focused. He stays constant. And he's not lulled to sleep by the daily grind of life. The world has a tendency to wear Christians out. Paul writes in all of his New Testament letters to be watchful, to stand firm. And this is the constant tone of what he says to believers is don't forget the faith that's been entrusted to you. Don't forget the gospel that's been delivered to you. And I think it's a warning to us not to be lulled to sleep by this world. That gospel that I preached earlier, that is the thing we hold fast to. And we preach it to ourselves daily because we know how forgetful we are. We know how quickly we are to forget that message and to instead move on to other things. And so we can't get lulled to sleep. We need to live with this conviction in mind. And so to close, I want to give you a little picture of what that looks like. John the Baptist comes as the first of the Old Testament, or the last of the Old Testament prophets, really kind of the first of the New Testament prophets, and he ends up as a martyr. And all of the apostles, except John, end up also martyred. They all die. Luke ends up being killed. Uh, he gets hung, it says, according to tradition. 
And we see that if you follow the early church, the common thread between almost all of them, not location, not even really their faith, the common thread between all the leaders in the early church is typically they don't live a full life and have a natural death. They're killed, typically. If you are aware of Ignatius, he gets thrown before and fed to hungry lions by the Roman government. But I want to go to right around the 15th century, and we're going to look at two people who you don't really know about unless you really love church history. And this is a guy named Bishop Ridley and Bishop Latimer. And they lived during the reign of Bloody Mary. And they preached that the, God, the Bible should be written in English. They questioned teachings and traditions of the Catholic Church. They questioned praying in Latin and holding Mass in Latin when no people spoke Latin. They questioned some of the abuses of power of the Pope and the influence he exhorted over the people. And as a result of this, both of them separately get, end, end up getting thrown in prison. They both live lives kind of distinct from each other. They get thrown in the same prison together. And Bishop Ridley and Bishop Latimer become friends during their time in prison. And ultimately, the government says, we've had enough of these guys. They're not recanting of their beliefs. Let's execute them. And they decide, for efficiency's sake, they're going to execute them on the same day. And so what they do is the day is planned. They get food served. They get kind of their last meal. The next morning, they wake up. They're led to kind of the center square of the city. And Bishop Ridley and Bishop Latimer, they go right up to the stake where it's been kind of prepared for them. The kindling's already on the wood, or the kindling's already been laid down. And they are chained to the stake and then forced to listen to a homily calling them to repent of their teachings and instead become joined again to the Catholic Church, to recant of their doctrine of justification and to instead be once again wed to the church. And they would be let go and free to preach again. But neither of them recants. And when that is decided, after this sermon has been preached, and they decide not to recant, the fire gets lit, they're chained to the stake, and Bishop Ridley, or Bishop Ladmer, looks over to Bishop Ridley, and he says to him, be of good cheer, Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day, by God's grace, light up such a candle in England as I trust will never be put out. And that candle was never put out. The Reformation spread forth in England. In fact, as a result of their death, many people come to salvation because they say, what conviction causes people not to, not to abandon hope or abandon conviction when things get rough? And Bishop Ladmer, with this quote, dies. He dies. Bishop Ridley dies a few moments later. And the question then that I have for you is the same one at the beginning. What makes for a meaningful life? Is it success? Is it accomplishment? Is it career, house, family, job, respect? What makes for a meaningful life? And that's something I want you to wrestle with as you go through this week. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that through your spirit you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to respond to your truth. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone tonight who is wrestling through the claims and the convictions of the gospel, that you would bring to bear your spirit on their hearts. Lord, bring to mind the fact that we are an imperfect people, not because we sin, but because we're sinners. And Lord, move us to repentance. And I pray for those of us who know the gospel and who love the gospel and who have since dulled ourselves to the gospel, that you would allow us to once again feel the conviction of sin once again feel the mercy poured out by Jesus on the cross, and once again feel the love that God pours out through his Son and ultimately through his Spirit to bind us together and to raise us to new life, not as servants, not as slaves, but ultimately as sons 
And Lord, I thank you for the truth of your word that it is constant throughout time, that this is a testimony we can look back to in history for, through John the Baptist and his example, and ultimately even through the church and the martyrs of the church today, Lord, who live and who die according to these convictions. And I pray that you would, in some measure, give us the faith to be a little more like that. Lord, I know that in the church that we live in, it is very uncommon to have that kind of conviction. Lord, I pray that supernaturally you will move us towards that end, to live lives that have meaning, to live lives that have purpose, not by the standards of the world, but Lord, ultimately by your standards, which are the only ones that matter. Lord, I pray that you would allow us to worship you uh, in spirit and in truth as we continue on in our time together tonight. Lord, I pray that you would give our hearts and our voices courage and strength to lift up voices and praise of your holy name as is fitting. And I pray, Lord, all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.